Those are some rich lyrics. Think about that for just a moment. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is sweet truth in that old hymn. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1 this evening. It's not a book that we turn to a whole lot. So I'll give you a minute if you need to, to find it. Go to the middle and go just a little bit to the right. You'll run into Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 21. Uh, We're going to actually spend uh, this evening in chapter 21 and chapter 22 uh, working through this. If you uh, have been reading along in the Daily Bible, you know that this is a section that we've been covering uh, in that. And I think that if we're honest with one another, that we will say that there's every once in a while we run across passages of Scripture where, where we know that it is the Word of God, but we wonder, how in the world does this apply to me today? And I think that we're going to be in one of those passages tonight. Jeremiah 21 deals with the destruction of Jerusalem, and we're going to figure out what, is this, uh, what does this have to do with us today? I, I remember uh, when I was younger, sitting with my grandpa. He, he was a great godly man, and he... Uh, uh, he's gone on to be with the Lord now, but he loved to, to read the Word. And, I, and he was sitting there, and I was just sitting talking with him, and he kind of had this quizzical look on his face. And, and he looked at me and said, well, what's the deal in the Bible where the axe head floats? You all know the passage I'm talking about? You all remember that? All right, well, to refresh you. Uh, there's this woodcutter, he's chopping wood, and the axe head flies off, goes in the water, and sinks. Well, you think, okay, the axe head is gone. Well, what can I do? Well, he goes up to Elisha and says, my axe head flew off. It's gone in the water, and what do I do now? And so Elisha goes, and he throws a stick, and the axe head floats up. As my grandpa said, what's that about? And I think every once in a while we run across a passage of Scripture where we just look at it and say, I know that this is the Word of God. I believe 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God, and I believe it's all profitable for teaching and proof, training and righteousness, all this kind of stuff. But I don't know what this has to do with me right now. Tonight we're going to look at a passage that maybe you read and kind of wondered that yourself. Because when we look at this passage, Jerusalem is being destroyed. We've got an invading army. And, and so we're wondering, all right, you know, 2,500 years later, what does this have to do with me and you? So we're going to look at that tonight. And I think one thing that we're going to find is that, that there is a message to us. All of Scripture is profitable. When Paul said that, he was speaking of the Old Testament. All of Scripture is profitable, so we'll see this. And I think that tonight we'll see that the message of Jeremiah is a message of challenge and conviction for us. And I think it's a message that is comfort and encouragement also. So Jeremiah chapter 21, starting at verse 1, follow along with me. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur, the son of Malchijah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Maaseiah, saying, Please inquire of the Lord on our behalf, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is warring against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful acts, so that the enemy will withdraw from us. All right, at first, I want, us, I want you to have just a little bit of background. I want you to get the picture of where we are in redemptive history. If you remember, we've talked about redemptive history before, that God has a purpose to redeem a people for himself. And so just quickly moving through redemptive history, very quickly, let's start with Abraham. God had his purpose to redeem people for himself. So he calls unto Abraham and says, I will make you a great nation. God makes Abraham into a great nation. His promise continues on until we see that, that Israel is multiplied. 
they're held captive in, uh, in uh, Egypt, and God frees them by his mighty works. Uh, God takes them out into the wilderness. He makes a covenant with them, says that I will be your God if you will be my people. The people of covenant say, yes, we will be your people. Be our God for us. So they make the covenant. God leads them into the promised land. They, he miraculously gives them the promised land, overcoming all the armies and, and people that are there. Uh, and so he gives them the promised land. But in spite of him making the covenant with them, in spite of him giving the promised land, the people turn away from him. Time and time again, they go to false gods. And so after a while, the kingdom of Israel splits. And this is kind of important because you need to know this. The kingdom of Israel splits. You have the northern kingdom called Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, and so everybody, all the kings in Israel are wicked, evil, every one of them. They're all bowing down to idols, turning the people away. And so in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom falls. So you would think that if your you know, neighbor up north is totally wiped out by another army, and you see, well, they've been bowing down to idols. God judges them. Maybe we will do something about it. Well, that's not what happens to Judah. Judah continues on in their sin, turning toward idols, bowing down to false gods, and finally God says, enough is enough. It's time to, to deal with this. And this is the situation that we're in right now. There is an invading army that has taken Judah siege. Right outside of Jerusalem is Basically, one of the largest empires of that time, the Babylonian army, camped out out there holding Jerusalem siege for over a year. Now, I want you to get the picture of this. The Babylonian army is, is kind of the big army of the time period. Judah is a very small place. It's the size of you know, four or five Pulaski counties. And then Jerusalem, kind of in the middle of that. And so we've got the biggest army of the day in that area fighting against this tiny little people. It would be like the United States Army coming against Somerset. You know, there's not much chance of victory there. And so the king goes, sends this somebody to go to Jeremiah and say, hey, I remember hearing stories about how God delivered the people in amazing ways. And so will you go and talk to Jeremiah and see maybe God will do that again for us? And so this person has gone up to Jeremiah and asked, will God deliver us by these mighty acts? Now I want you to listen to Jeremiah's response. Listen to this. Then Jeremiah said to them, this is verse 3, You shall say to Zedekiah as follows, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am about to turn back the weapons of war which, you are, which are in your hands, with which you are warring against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who are besieging uh, you outside the wall. I will gather them into the city, in the center of this city. I myself will war against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. I will also strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They will die of a great pestilence. Then afterwards, declares the Lord, I will give over Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people, even those who survive in this city from the pestilence, the sword, and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their foes, and into the hand of those who seek their lives, and he will strike them down with the edge of the sword. He will not spare them, nor have pity, nor compassion. You shall say also to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life, the way of death. He who dwells in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. He who goes out and falls away to the Chaldeans who are besieging you will live. He will save his own life as booty. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. This is probably not the answer that Zedekiah is wanting to hear. Listen, listen to what 
Jeremiah says, what the Lord says through Jeremiah. This is graphic language that is used here to describe the oncoming destruction of Jerusalem. God says that he is going to stretch out his hand and his mighty arm against them. Normally, this is language that would be used to describe God's work for the sake of his people. But this time, it's being used to describe God being against his people. And it multiplies these terms of God's anger. There in verse 5, it says, In anger and wrath and great indignation, he is going to stretch out his mighty arm, his hand against his people. He's going to, bring, uh, he's going to strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast, He's going to bring a plague against them. Those who survive are going to be carried away uh, into uh, captivity in Babylon. This this is a graphic image of what God is getting ready to do to his people. And so when we look at this and we see what is happening, what is coming, the question we ask ourselves is, did, did God, would God really allow this to happen to his people? When I was preparing for this sermon, I ran across someone who wrote this. God does not bring calamity on us. Yes, bad things happen all the time to good people and to not-so-good folks, but God is not the cause of it. Is that, is that guy right? According to this passage, God didn't just allow this to happen to Jerusalem, but it was God's mighty hand that brought this to his people. It was God's hand that brought the army, that brought the plague, that brought the sword and the fire that fell upon Jerusalem. God was the one who stretched his army, his hand out, bringing this. So why, why would God do this to his people? They are his people who he has covenanted with, who he has redeemed for himself, created a people for himself. So now why does he bring this absolute destruction down upon his people? Well, as, as we think about this, I think we need, we need to start by remembering God's covenant with he, that he made with his people. Go back and remember on Mount Sinai. God gives the Ten Commandments and the covenant that he gives with them there. He says, I will be your God if you will be my people. Here's the terms that I lay out for you. This is my law. I've, I've given it to you. Will you be my people knowing that this is the requirement on you? And people say, yes, yes, we will be your people. And and so by making that covenant, they were saying, we belong to you. You are our God. And as you are our God, it is our duty to reflect your glory. It is our duty to show forth your greatness, your majesty, and your glory in our dealings with one another and our dealings with the nations. But what we see happening is the people of God absolutely, utterly, totally failing in God's call upon their lives to reflect his holiness. And so we're going to look at just two reasons that the text lists out here for showing why the people failed and why this judgment came upon them. So remember, we're going to do chapter 21 and chapter 22. So look over in chapter 22, starting at at verse 8. We're going to see, why did God bring this judgment upon his people? Because they rejected his covenant and worshiped false gods. 22, verse 8, listen to this. Many nations will pass by this city, and they will say to one another, Why has the Lord done thus to the great city? People are going to be walking by, and they're going to see Jerusalem in ruins. And so they're going to know it was a great city, and so they're going to wonder, what has this people done that their God would be so angry to wipe away the city? And the answer is in verse 9. They will answer, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed down to other gods and served them. 
the reason Jerusalem is going to be in ruins, is going to be just a heap of rubble, is because they worshipped, bowed down to other gods rather than the one true God. This is, this is a vivid word picture here. The language that Jeremiah is using here is of is bowing down, prostrating themselves before wooden and stone images. They had said that we will be your people and you will be our God. But instead what they do is they make, they carve images out of stone, images out of wood, and they prostrate themselves giving homage to the stone rather than to the creator of the stone. And so over and over again we see this happening in the Old Testament. We see the kings chasing after these foreign gods. We see the people themselves bowing down to these foreign idols. And then God responding to that by sending over and over again prophets to them saying, turn away from this. Throw away your idols. Bow down to the one true God, not these images that are just made out of stone and wood. Why would you worship something that you create with your own hand? If you look through the prophets, you'll see nearly every single one of them dealing with the subject of idolatry. Over and over again, God sends Isaiah. God sends men like Jeremiah. God sends men like Amos to deal with this subject. But over and over again, the people fail to listen. And as Isaiah said, quoting God, God said, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. We serve a God who is a holy God, and he will not allow his glory to be given to another. And so there came a time when God's patience wore out, and he would not forever overlook the sin of his people, and there came a point that he would deal with their sin. And so that's what we see happening here in the destruction of Jerusalem, God responding to the sin of his people. So that's the first reason. First reason is because they bow down to false idols. The second is because they failed to care for the poor and needy among them. I want to say that again. The second reason is because they failed to care for the poor and needy among them. And we wouldn't normally think of that being a reason that God would send an army against his people. I want you to listen to everything that's said here in chapter 22. Go back, chapter 22, verse 1, and just listen. Listen to what Isaiah, or to what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on David's throne, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow. Do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you men will indeed perform this thing, then kings will enter the gates of this house, sitting in David's place on his throne, riding in chariots and in horses, even the king himself and his servants and his people. But if you will not obey these words... I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, You are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, yet most assuredly I will make you like a wilderness, like cities which are not inhabited. For I will set apart destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they will cut down your choicest cedars and throw them on the fire. God says, What you are to do is to do justice and righteousness. Deliver the one who's been robbed, the one who is poor, the one who is needy, the one who has been oppressed. Don't mistreat, don't do violence, 
care for the stranger, care for the orphan, care for the widow. And if you will do this, then you will never fail to have someone on your throne. But if you do these things, then I will make you like a wasteland. I will make you like uninhabited cities. I will set destroyers apart against you. Because they failed to care for the poor and the needy among them. These are harsh words that Jeremiah uses, that God uses through Jeremiah. Look at verse 15 of chapter 22. Do you become a king because you're competing in cedar? Did your father, did not your father, this is speaking of Josiah, a good godly king, did not your father Josiah eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. See, didn't he do what was right to the poor? Justice and righteousness to those in need. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Listen to that. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? To plead the cause of the afflicted and needy. But your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion. Jeremiah is saying, if you'd been like your father Josiah and caring for the afflicted and needy, then this wouldn't be coming upon you. But because you're not, because you're afflicting the poor and needy, you're not caring for the poor and needy, you're oppressing the poor and needy, this destruction is at your doorstep. You see, all throughout, all throughout Scripture, we see God proclaiming that it is the duty of his people to care for the poor and needy among them. I want you to listen to Deuteronomy 15. It says, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying the seventh year of the year of remission is near and your eyes hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Care for the poor and needy among you. Remember our Reach 82 ministry that we do? Reach 82, it comes from Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verse 3 and 4 say, Vindicate the, the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. These are all commands in the way they're written. Vindicate. Do justice. Rescue. Deliver. Who are we supposed to do this to? The weak and the fatherless. The afflicted and the destitute. The weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. This is God's call upon God's people. And when God's people fail to do this, God brings his judgment upon his people. Proverbs 17.5 says, He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. And so God sees his people oppressing the poor, and rather than caring for them, giving justice to them, they are oppressing the people, and so God brings his judgment upon them. But listen to this. I want you to catch this. God doesn't bring his justice, his judgment upon them just because they oppress the poor. God brings his judgment upon them also, just because they ignore the poor among them. Look back at chapter 21, verse 12. Chapter 21, verse 12. O house of David, 
Thus says the Lord, administer justice every morning and deliver the person who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor that my wrath may not go forth like fire and burn with none to extinguish it because of their evil deeds. This is what they were supposed to be doing. Delivering justice to the one who's been robbed, the one who's been oppressed. But instead, what we see is in chapter 22. Look at chapter 22, verse 13 and 14. Instead of giving justice to the poor and needy, this is what the people do. Verse 13 of chapter 22, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build my house, build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms, and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. So God looks down at his people and sees them living in luxury while they ignore the poor around them. God's people live in luxury while ignoring the poor around them. In Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-seven, God says, He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. And what we see happening is the people of God shutting their eyes to the needs of people around them. And so we see Jeremiah proclaiming the word of the Lord that God is going to bring his judgment upon his people because they have shut their eyes to the poor. And so after a siege of more than a year, the Babylonian army breaks through the walls of Jerusalem. They destroy the city. They tear down the temple. They burn it with fire. They kill the majority of the people. And those who are left, they take captive into Babylon. And so now we see this great destruction come. And so I want to bring us back to the question that we started with tonight. What does all this have to do with me and you today? Is there anything that we're supposed to take from this other than it being a history lesson of what happened to the people of Judah? Well, I think there's a lot that God's Word has to say to us from this passage and other passages like it. And so I think one of the things that you and I can learn from this passage is that God will not tolerate forever the sins of his people. Our God is a holy God. Our God is a God who will not share his glory with another. And scripture clearly says that he, that he is patient and that he is long-suffering. But with the Israelites... Time after time, they continued to turn their back upon him. And time after time, God sent prophets calling on the kings to return. And time after time, they rejected And so eventually, God brought his judgment upon his people. Now, I think, I think there's a principle here in regard to how God deals with his people. God's purpose is for his people to shine forth his glory. God's purpose for me and you is to shine forth the majesty to reflect that to our, us around here and to all the world. When God's people fail to do that, then God brings discipline into the life of his people so that his people will learn to focus themselves on shining forth his glory. I want you to think about just a minute what God's purpose is in your life. I want you to listen to, to these verses. And I, I want you to listen and just tell me, what do these verses say is God's purpose for us? Ephesians 1, 4, the passage we've dealt with a lot. Just as he chose us in him before the found, foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 
All right, according to that verse, what is God's purpose for us? That we would be holy and blameless, right? All right, good. You all are catching on. Good. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. So according to that, what is God's purpose for us? Yes, be conformed to the image of his son. So God's purpose for his people is we will be holy and that we will be blameless, that we will be conformed to the image of his son. So that's God's purpose that he is working out in my life and in your life. And so when God is working out that purpose in our lives, he is going to use every means possible to bring about that purpose. And sometimes when we have turned away from him, God takes and uses discipline in our lives to take us and bring us back to himself and mold us into what he has called us to be. All right, listen to what Hebrews chapter 12 says. This passage you know, and I want you to listen to what it says about discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there with whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. God is the Father who disciplines us. Every father who loves his children disciplines them. I have a two-year-old. I spend a lot of time in discipline. This morning, didn't even get to the service. Have to discipline Caleb because he runs off. Have to discipline Caleb because he bites me. Father disciplines his children. Why? Because to set them on the right path, to show them their error and point them to where they need to be going. I would be an unloving, ungodly father if I did nothing about my son's disobedience. And God would be an unloving, unjust father if he did nothing about us turning away from him. And so when we see God dealing with his people in such a way as we see in Jeremiah, we see a father who's bringing what his, what his children deserve and, and essentially what they need. So when we read this passage, it should remind us to not be like stubborn Judah. For hundreds of years, God was dealing with them. Say, turn, turn. Stop bowing down to these idols. Prophet after prophet going to them is saying, turn from your wicked ways. Going to the kings, turn from your wicked ways. Calling out to the people, say, return to your Lord. But time and time again, they failed. When we read this, it should remind us of the words of the writer of Hebrews where he said to strengthen the hands of their weak, the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so, so the limb which is lame won't be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, see how God dealt with his people. Return to him. Don't be stubborn like Judah to the point where the limb has to be torn off 
before we finally return to him. So I think tonight as we look at this, there's a real challenge for me and you here. When we see the sin of Judah, I think it calls on us to look at our own lives and question, do those same sins reside in me? Do I struggle with those sins? All right, pop quiz. What were the two sins that we mentioned? Idols and what else? There we go. Oh, you, all, you all are listening. That's good to hear. Not bowing down to idols and caring for the poor and needy. Now, I, I'm not a prophet, but I think I'm pretty right in saying that each and every one of us struggle with that. You and I struggle with the sin of idolatry and the sin of not caring for the poor and needy. I think. I think I'm accurate in saying that. I know I am in the first one. Because when it comes to idolatry, you and I probably don't bow down to a piece of wood or a piece of stone. That's not something that you know, more than likely we do anymore. But more than likely, we do bow down to our own man-made things. Because I can look at my own heart, and I can see a whole list of things that I have turned into idols. Things that I have set up at times and loved more than I have loved God. The list can go on and on. My wife... I've loved her times more than God. My son, loved him more than I've loved God at times. My job, this church, money, prestige, my house, my yard, my car, my school, friends, sports, the list could go on and on. The things that my heart has at times given itself to more than given itself to God. And I think if we're honest, we'll look at our lives and we'll see idols that keep popping up that we keep struggling with. And when we see a passage like Jeremiah, it should be a reminder to us that pierces our heart and say, tear down the idols that we keep struggling with. Stop looking at those things. Set your gaze upon the only one who is worthy, the only one who will not share his glory. He is the only one that is worthy. He, nothing else is worthy of our heart's devotion. So let's tear down the idols. So it's a reminder of that. It's a reminder also of the sin that we struggle with and not caring for the poor and needy. Now, probably in here, most of us aren't oppressing the poor and needy. It's not like we're going out and saying, here, I'll hire you for a job, but I'm not going to pay you. Most of us aren't struggling with that area of temptation. But where we might be struggling with is that we just fail to, to notice and fail to care for the poor and needy. Over and over in Scripture, we see God commanding his people to care for the poor and needy. Not just to not do wrong to them, but to actively do justice, do right to them. And, and so when I look at my own life, I have to honestly say there, that I live in luxury and often just fail to, to even notice the poor and needy. But, but that's exactly what Judah was doing. Woe to him who says, I build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. Did you become a king because you're competing in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? He did it right. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy, then it was well. Is not that what it means to know the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain. And so I have to be honest and look at my life and say, sometimes, sometimes that's me just not even taking notice of the poor and needy around me. 
And so when, I, when we come to a passage like this, I think that there's, there's a challenge and there's conviction there when we examine it. But I think there's also encouragement. I think there's also hope, consolation in the midst of this. Because Israel was God's people. They were his that he set apart for himself, and God will not abandon his people. So even though God brought destruction upon Jerusalem, I want you to listen to the promise of what he was going to do for his people. Jeremiah chapter 33, this is just a few chapters over, telling what is going to happen to God's people. Jeremiah 33, starting with verse 1, listen, listen to the words of the Father. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard, saying, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you. I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of this city, concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege ramps and against the sword. While they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans and to fill them with corpses of men who I have slain in my anger and in my wrath, and I have hidden my face from this city because of their wickedness, behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth which will hear of all the good that I do for them and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it for my people. So if we are God's people, then God's purpose for us is good. God's purpose for us is to conform us to the image of Christ. And though he may take us through times of discipline, God will bring about his purpose of conforming us to Christ. Think about sinful Judah, all they did, and the absolute destruction that came upon them. And yet God said, I will rebuild them, and they will be my people, and they will have my love upon them. The same is true of me and you if we know him. You, you may experience, you will experience the Father's discipline. And you may be experiencing that right now. But when we see the hope that comes out of the destruction of Jerusalem, we know that God's purposes for his people will never be thwarted. God's purpose to take you and conform you to the image of Christ and to grow you in Christ will never be thwarted. He will do the good that he has planned and purposed for you. And so when you face the most horrible of circumstances, know that that's the purpose that God is going to work out for you in the end. It may be dreadful in the moment, but his purpose will never be, will never fail for you. And so when we come, when we come to passages like this, that are full of things that we wonder and look and say, how in the world does that have anything to do with me? All Scripture is inspired by God, and it is all profitable for challenging us, for encouraging us, rebuking us, for training us in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be equipped. 
for all that God's purposes are for our lives. And so this is why we trust his word. This is why it's all profitable. This is why it's important for us to do like what we're doing with the daily Bible, to read it all the way through every year. So God's word will work in us, shaping us to be more and more what he's called us to be. Let's pray together tonight. Our Father, it is so good to gather together. It is so good to know your purposes for us, that you are a loving Father who has called us to yourself to know you and to follow you, to be conformed to Christ, and that you will not leave us in your sin, in our sin, that we will not just merely wallow in our sin forever, but God, that you will, like a loving Father, discipline us when needed, and that you will restore us to yourself. God, I thank you for the challenge and conviction that comes from reading these kinds of passages. I thank you, God, for the encouragement that comes. And God, I thank you for difficult passages that we have to wrestle with that cause us to trust even more your word and to dig in even more to know the precious truths that are found there. God, as we go to, into congregational meeting here shortly, Lord, I pray that you will be honored and pleased during that time. And I pray, Father, that you will continue working your purposes for us individually and corporately as a body. May all glory go to you, Lord. We know you will not share your glory with another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's take about...